great to have you along for Constant Wonder. I'm Tenery Taylor. A couple of years ago, billboards went up around the Salt Lake City area, not far from here, announcing that a millionaire was looking for a wife and advertising a website where interested women could apply. 2,500 did, and 20 were selected to attend a dinner and speed dating type event to meet him in person. Now we've had The Bachelor and The Bachelorette and regular people swipe right all the time. But if you think any of this is a modern phenomenon, well, it's only the technology that's changed. Advertising for love, at least for marriage, um, has been part of the American culture from even before there was an America officially. Francesca Bowman is a historian, author, and bookseller. Her latest book is Matrimony, Inc., as in Matrimony Incorporated, From Personal Ads to Swiping Right, A Story of America Looking for Love. Welcome to Constant Wonder. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So, of course, I have to start by asking you, how did you meet your husband? <laughs> oh, I wish I could say I met him through a personal <laughs> ad, um, but I'm afraid not, it's not quite as exciting as that. I met him at work. Um, I used to be a TV host, and he uh, used to be a TV director. Um, and so we worked together on a show. In fact, the first show I ever did in a, in a studio being a little bit vague about how the microphones work, so I would chat to my co-host about the director that I kind of liked, not knowing that my <laughs> voice was being broadcast to the entire gallery, the vision mixer, and the uh, uh, and everybody listening to all this. But you know, man, I couldn't play hard to get. He certainly knew where he stood from the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> now, if if you were going to write an ad that advertised who you are, what would it say? Oh, gosh, that's a tricky one. I mean, from my um, experience of researching these ads, I would certainly be very uh, straightforward and very open and talk more about me than what I was looking for um, in a partner, right? Because you never know who you're going to fall in love with. So I would keep it straightforward. I would probably say um, uh, British brunette likes books and pubs. <laughs> and good sense of humor, something like that. But I would definitely um, uh, keep it straightforward and honest and direct. But you haven't said anything about pineapples, and I, I'm so curious about your interest in pineapples. Your website is decorated with them. You are wearing yellow in all your press materials. What, what's the thing with pineapples? Oh, you're right. So pineapples are really my great love, I suppose. So my first book, believe it or not, was a history of the pineapple. And I remain the global expert in the history of the pineapple, which people sometimes think is a joke when I tell them that at dinner parties, but, um, but really is sort of w one of the subjects I've, I've been working on for a, for a long time. I wrote my thesis on it at the University of Cambridge. I published a book about it in 2005. And in fact, just this past January, I chaired a conference at the University of Cambridge about the history of the pineapple, which I was thrilled about because it seems the subject is at last going mainstream. Um, <laughs> What I found in my research was that pineapples are really the status symbol of the 18th century. So a single pineapple cost the equivalent of $10,000. They were really a symbol of, of wealth, of status, of how rich they, you were. So wow. Thomas Jefferson would serve them at dinner. So would George Washington to impress his guests. And, and, and as a result, you know, my, my book is really a history of Britain and America, but through through the history of the pineapple. It was really a fun topic um, to write about. And you also, you know what, it's fun to be the global expert in anything, right, these days. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to tell our listeners that was just a tease for another conversation, and we will have you back to talk about pineapples um, at, a, at another time, because that's oh, just that. fascinating. Um, so what's the hook for you with, with personal ads? I've always been interested in personal ads. So I've always read them in the back of the newspaper on a Sunday morning when you're, you know, at your breakfast table eating croissants in a leisure, leisurely way. I've always been fascinated by these short little, you know, um, texts of maybe 100 or 200 words um, there in the newspaper um, where people really expose their innermost needs and desires, right? Um, I've always been interested by these little, they're like little detective stories. You know, you think, who are these people? What are they looking for? Did they ever find the one? What happened next? I was curious to find out how far back they dated. And then, you know, when I, when I started looking into it, I was astonished to find that America's first personal ad dates back as far as 1759, 
um, which no one no one realised how far back uh, they go. So I found one in the Boston Evening Post as, as early as 1759. And, you know, from there I knew I had a, a story, right? I knew I had a book because um, it was clear to me right away that this was going to be an amazing source about the history of love, the history of marriage, the history of human mate choice in a very general sense. Well, describe um, some of those early ads from, you know, before we were even a country. Oh, I love those early ads. So um, the earliest personal ad in America was in the Boston Evening Post in 1759. Uh, And it was a young gentleman looking for a wife. And this is what he, he sought. He wanted any young lady between the age of 18 and 23 of a middling stature, brown hair, a lively, brisk eye of good morals. <laughs> but what's <laughs> interesting is it really speaks to what people have been looking for in a wife throughout the 18th and 19th century, which is really comes down to three things, young, respectable, and rich. <laughs> and while he uses all this highfalutin language, that's really what he's saying, young, respectable, and rich. So it's an amazing insight into what an 18th century Bostonian gentleman was like, what, you know, what he was, what he was looking for. And what's fascinating is that these early personal ads, for example, in Boston in the 1750s, you really get as soon as you get the first newspapers and magazines. And also as the population of Boston grew, because that's when you need to advertise for love, right? You can't just marry the girl next door or, you know, um, somebody your mom introduces you to. Uh, Once the population grows, maybe you're working long hours, maybe it's hard to meet people. That's when you need a, a new form of matchmaking. And that's what emerged very, very early on of the, on, on the East Coast. Now, did you find any of these ads humorous? Oh, I mean, I find them all humorous. Um, uh, again, one of my favorite early ads was a, a very early one in New York City, uh, which appeared in 1788. And it's, um, it was from a young gentleman of fame and fortune, tall, stout, and esteemed agreeable. Okay, But what he was looking for in a wife is just amazing. So this is his only criteria, and this is 1788, his only criteria in a wife are that she must be under 40, not deformed, and in possession of at least 1,000 pounds. <laughs> so not really what you'd see in a Tinder ad today, right? Kind of, kind of different. <laughs> uh, so you talked a little bit about the expansion of cities and yes. how, how difficult it was to, to meet people when you don't have, like, the village and you know everybody. Yes. And, and so I'm wondering if there are some other factors of American history that um, really drove – drove the need for personal ads in a way that was maybe different from in other countries. Right, absolutely. Um, uh, certainly, there, there were a number of factors that led to personal ads becoming hugely, hugely, hugely popular. In the beginning, you know, they were they were they were like a public service, right? Like a postal service or or whatever. They were really a, a reflection of the fact that the population was growing. So then, you know, you, you got lots of ads in Philadelphia by 1850, and that was because the population of Philadelphia had hit 120,000 people at the same time. Industrialization was occurring. So people were working long hours. Um, uh, they were moving to the big city for jobs. At the same time, of course, in the 19th century, you get a lot of personal ads on the American frontier. And that, um, again, was a, mm. was a feature of the American frontier was so male dominated. There was a real gender disparity um, throughout the 19th century. Uh, so, for example, um, in California during the gold rush, there was 200 men to every one woman. <laughs> um, and so uh, this was really a problem that needed addressing, right? Because without women there, not to put too fine a point on it, but you can't, you can't settle a society because you can't create families, right? So this was definitely a problem that needed to be solved. And personal ads were really one major way that, that, that they solved it, that the frontier was settled and therefore that the West was populated. And without personal ads, that certainly would have taken a lot longer and really been very difficult. When personal ads reached the peak of their popularity, which was around the 1890s, when you just had thousands and thousands of them in every newspaper in the nation, again, that was a feature of America beginning to modernize, of becoming a bit more democratic, right, so that anyone could advertise in the newspaper. You know, you had to have a little bit of cash to do so, but you didn't have to be 
fancy, you know, in the 1890s, you start to see mechanics advertise or farmhands advertise, um, more and more women advertise. And again, you know, with, with um, women's rights coming to the fore, um, you know, particularly after, uh, you know, um, Seneca Falls in the 1840s, with women's rights coming to the fore, more and more women um, start to place personal ads. So as you say, it really tracks the development of American history, but through these these little little kind of hundred or two hundred word pieces of text. Well, I want to tease apart some of the things that you've just said. First of all, if we've got lots of men out on the frontier, that must mean that there are maybe an excess of women back east. Is that true? Right. There was an excess of women back east, which is why uh, uh, lots of the personal ads would be in East Coast newspapers trying to convince women to to move west, to say, look, there's all these men here to marry. Like, you know, uh, uh, there was one, um, an article in in the Philadelphian newspaper called The Public Ledger in 1837 that said every respectable young woman who goes west is sure of an advantageous marriage, while from the superabundance of her own sex in the east, her chances for it are not greater than those for a disappointment. <laughs> so, you know, that was really the crux of the matter. The plenitude of, of bachelors on the plains um, beckoned women, many of whom, you know, didn't have many other options, just like sitting around on the east coast, getting bored and waiting for a man to turn up. This, um, this issue, of course, then became uh, even more came to the forefront of American life um, immediately after the Civil War. So in the late 1860s and the, uh, and the early 1870s, when sadly so many men had been killed in the Civil War, again, this was a real problem for, for women to, to find a husband. You know, women all over the country um, were, were worried that they were not going to find a husband. And, and, and at that time, of course, there were few other financial options um, open to them. But, you know, between 1860 and 1890, unmarried women constituted a higher percentage of the population than at any other time in the nation's history. Um, so, uh, And I want, had... you have an example that really illustrates that. If, I mean, if, if we haven't gotten the picture yet, there's um, a little town of um, Irwin, Colorado, and um, you describe how <laughs> basically there's a speed dating situation going on. Could you could you kind of flesh out that story for us? Um, one of the mining engineers there wrote, wrote in his diary that um, no fewer than 40 men were courting the town's only respectable unmarried woman, who was the camp doctor's wife's sister. So they set up the system limiting the parlor to six callers at a time, and each of them got a maximum of four minutes on the sofa with the girl. Um, so, you know, it's really an extraordinary setup, but because of the gender disparity, you know, there really was a chronic shortage of single women of marriageable age. Um, I should say of single white women of marriageable age, I'm afraid, um, mm. which is what these um, many of these mining engineers were looking for, or minor, miners were looking for. Um, you know, they had to find other forms of matchmaking, and uh, personal you know, came, came along to help them. Well, I'm trying to think about how these women, if they were brave enough to say, okay, I'm going to set out west, I mean, were they having... Remind us um, how they'd have to travel there, because at, at some point there isn't even a railroad. Um, well, exactly. So it, it's astonishing to think that so many of these women felt that it was their best option, right, to travel across, across the country thousands of miles um, to marry probably a man they'd never met. But it really speaks, I'm afraid, to the lack of options available to single young women at the time, you know, particularly in terms of... Um, financially supporting themselves. You know, they just really didn't have many other options. And as a result, many of them decided that that this is what they were going to do. So they would get on a a coach or a carriage um, and make their way across the country. Obviously, this did increase hugely um, once the railroads were built. And again, that's that's when personal ads began to reach their peak because it was it was easier to answer ads from all over the country. And that was what really struck me about so many of these personal ads as I researched them. In the 19th century, you would just be amazed at the geographical spread of them. They were in every newspaper in every state in the country, national newspapers, local newspapers, teeny tiny local newspapers in everywhere from Kansas to California and Wisconsin and Wyoming. They were everywhere. And I just kept being amazed at how, I, how many I'd find in even the smallest local newspapers. It just shows there really was 
um, this demand for them all over the nation. And, and you mentioned that after a while, women started advertising as well. Was this kind of scandalous at all? Well, so you would be amazed actually how early women started advertising um, for love, much earlier than I thought, right? Um, So there were some ads from women around the 1820s, 1830s, and then they really took off. In fact, in Philadelphia in the 1840s, when a newspaper called The Public Ledger started um, uh, printing a lot of ads from women, Uh, so one of the earliest ones in The Public Ledger um, was in 1840, May 1840. Uh, the woman describes her, her physical appearance. Uh, she says she has good teeth, a full face, and a good complexion. <laughs> so she's very straightforward. <laughs> she says she's desirous of changing single blessedness for matrimony. And in terms of age, she says she's a few years above the teens. Um, she's looking for a, a man who is perfectly sober. Um, which was quite common at the time uh, for sobriety to be a, a top priority amongst these women who were advertising because excessive drinking was a, was a real problem amongst men in Philadelphia at the time. So on average, they consume nearly seven gallons of pure alcohol a year, three times as much as we do today. Mm. Um, so, you know, it, it, these again, these personalities give a real sense of people's priorities at the time. But what I was so interested in with these women was how brave and bold they were to place these ads, to sort of step away from convention, which was just waiting for a man to turn up on your doorstep and propose, but really decide to take a very active role in in looking for a partner. And that's, of course, not what we hear all the time, right? We would think maybe that women wouldn't place these ads, but they really did from very early on. Um, and, you know, some of the best, some of the funniest ads, some of my favorite ads are really the ones placed by women. Oh, share with us one of your favorites. Oh, so um, there's one I love from Wisconsin in 1855. It, I found it in this tiny little local newspaper. Um, I stumbled across the headline, which says in big, bold, black type, husband wanted, exclamation point. Um, and she uh, talks about what she's looking for in a husband. Um, it's quite lengthy, quite detailed. But this is my favorite phrase uh, in what she's looking for a husband. She says, I want no brainless dandy or foppish fool, but a practical man who can drive a coach or rock the cradle, hoe the garden or attend the ballroom. (laughs) And then she goes on, on the whole, he must dress neat, look well and keep his head up in society. Again, it's a little different to what you get on Tinder today. So it's really an extraordinary insight into her romantic imagination, right, in terms of what she thinks the perfect man is. It's so characterful, so lively, and, and such an insight into into the history, really, of human mate choice. Well, and rock the cradle and hoe the field. I mean, <laughs> she is looking <laughs> for a modern like man. <laughs> I mean, perfect. Isn't that what we're all looking for? She's just brave enough to say it. Uh, and again, what I love is the specificity of it. So she is is really drilling down on what she's looking for in a partner. And, and what's interesting is seeing the development of that uh, uh, as the 19th century went on, people became increasingly specific about what they were looking for. Uh, One of my my favorite ads appeared in the New York Times in 1903, um, and it just shows there really was someone out there for everyone. So it's, it's an ad in the New York Times that says, young man, moderate circumstances, and who has glass eye, would like to form the acquaintance of a young lady who also has a glass eye. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was placed by a railway inspector. Uh, you know, it's just fascinating in terms of, of these people looking for a partner. And, and, and obviously that kind of specificity became even more pronounced with the advent of computer dating, then online dating, and of course today with dating apps, when you really can prescribe exactly what you're looking for. Hmm. We're going to take a quick break here on Constant Wonder. Our guest is Francesca Bowman. She's the author of Matrimony, Inc., From Personal Ads to Swiping Right, A Story of America Looking for Love. When we come back, we'll find out if any of these early personal ads led to real happily ever afters. Stay with us. Welcome back to Constant Wonder. I'm Tenery Taylor. Our guest is Francesca Bowman. She's the author of Matrimony, Inc., From Personal Ads to Swiping Right, A Story of America Looking for Love. 
you mentioned um, before the break about the Civil War, which basically wiped out a whole generation of eligible men. Um, But during the course of the war, there was something interesting going on, and women were recruited as their patriotic duty to um, help (laughs) kind of uphold the morale of the troops um, through correspondence. Will you... Will you describe that whole campaign? Right. So personal ads came to fulfill a new function, really, in in the 1860s. So whereas before personal ads had maybe, you know, been a bit out of the ordinary, a bit unusual, they suddenly became rather respectable because they came to be seen as a, as a view of, uh, as, a, as a form of war work, right? Because by writing to soldiers fighting in the Civil War, you were doing your patriotic duty. You were entertaining them. You were reminding them of home. You were keeping them jolly. And so for the first time, yeah, answering a personal ad was, was seen as kind of uh, respectable. Letter writing became a, a gender-specific form of, of, of war work. And so many of these soldiers would advertise in the newspapers, you know, in, often in the most heartbreaking of ways. So, for example, a particularly touching ad in the Sunday Mercury I found in 1862. It was addressed to patriotic unmarried ladies, and it was from a soldier just returned from the war, have lost a leg but expect to get a cork one, have a useless arm but will be called brave for it, was once good-looking but am now scarred all over. Oh. so sad, but so touching. And, you know, you can just imagine women everywhere reading that and, you know, wanting to help out, right? You then also get ads with a very different feel. So there was one in a Virginian newspaper, a local newspaper in 1863, from two young gentlemen who are both good-looking, intelligent, refined, and tried soldiers of Jackson's army. So, you know, you really get the whole range there. Um, but it was interesting how these personal ads took on a, a very patriotic edge to them in the 1860s. So I'm, I'm assuming that, you know, these did leave, they led to marriage and hopefully yes. they led to love. I mean, do how do you find out if they really worked and if things oh. worked out for the couple? Oh, it's so fun when one stumbles across uh, a couple who met in this way. So, you know, it's it's sometimes hard to track down because certainly with the early, early personal ads, people don't always want to um, talk about the fact that that's how they, how they met because in the early days, you know, people were maybe worried about what others would think. But, you know, I managed to find some wonderful stories. One of my favorite is the tale of Augusta Larson and Ol Rude. So um, in the 1890s, Augusta Larson was a, was a single young woman uh, living in Chicago, you know, trying to make a living, but it certainly wasn't easy. And she uh, answered a personal ad in a, in a Chicago newspaper from a gentleman named Olrud, who, had, um, uh, who, who was a Norwegian immigrant who had moved to Washington State to really be a pioneer to start working the land. Um, he placed an ad. They wrote to each other for a little while, Augusta and Ol. Um, she then got on a coach, <laughs> traveled the thousands of miles mm-hmm. to go visit him to a tiny town in Washington State. They decided to get married, and they did live happily ever after. They, you know, had children. They became, you know, real pioneers in the, in the classic sense of Washington State, working the land, having a big family, all of that. A really an excellent example of the way that personal ads were crucial to the settling, to the populating of the nation. Um, but what I love is that, you know, without the personal ads, Augusta Larson and Olrud, these two um, Scandinavian immigrants, they never would have met um, and they never would have married. So, you know, that's a, a story I find really sweet. And, you know, still today people will write to me, you know, they'll get in touch and say, oh, my great grandparents met through a personal ad, here it is. Or my grandparents met through a personal ad, here it is. And, you know, that's always, always so fun and, and charming to read about because it's such a wonderful twist of fate, right? You think, gosh, what if they hadn't seen this personal ad? What if they hadn't had the courage to answer this personal ad? You know, it's, it's always a lesson in, in seizing the moments and being brave. Mm. Now, you've written an entire book about British personal ads as well. And I just wonder if you could kind of quickly characterize, is there a difference between an American ad and a British ad that's kind of general to, to the... <laughs> there is, there is. So my, my 
previous book was indeed about um, the history of personalized in Britain. They, they started. Give us the title of that book because it's really fabulous. Uh, the title of it is Shapely Ankle Preferred, <laughs> which is a quote from one of the early, earliest personal ads in, in Britain that read something like, man seeks wife, must have shapely ankle and good cow management skills, something like that. <laughs> so, you know, it really sums up um, what men looked for in a wife at the time. Uh, and uh, having, you know, spent the years and years trawling through newspapers looking for personal ads, both in Britain and America, you know, I have read tens of thousands of them. There certainly are dis- differences, um, differences that, that kind of speak to, to a number of national stereotypes. So from the beginning, personal ads in America are much more open and honest about the economic realities of marriage. So they will be very upfront about, you know, must have £1,000 or must be in a lucrative business or must have own fortune. They're very uh, straightforward and direct about it. Whereas the British personalities will kind of be a little bit vaguer, you know, they'll kind of say, you know, must be comfortably situated or, you know, some other euphemism they'll use. So, the Americans who placed early ads were, were much more direct and, uh, and honest about money. Similarly, uh, uh, going on, say, 100 years, so the mid-19th century, personalized placed in America were the first to be much more direct about sex, really. So in the 1860s, you got the first ads that were kind of, you know, were not just about marriage. They were about other kinds of relationships. They were people looking for fun and frolics, they'll say, or looking for pleasure. Um, and that, you know, started in mostly the Midwestern cities, actually, in the 1860s. You get a lot in St. Louis, in Cincinnati, in Baltimore. Um, and that started much earlier in America, whereas in Britain, people were still being all shy and bashful about other relationships, you know, aside from marriage. And again, it really doesn't it sort of speak to these, these stereotypes of, mm. of national personalities that it turns out often do have a little bit of truth to them. Well, we've kind of painted a rosy picture about um, taking out an ad, finding a wife or a husband, but certainly this whole endeavor would be ripe for fraud, I would think. Oh, so much fraud. So in the 1890s and the early 1900s, there was really an unrecognized crime wave all across America of um, crimes perpetrated through the personal ads. But because the police forces in each state weren't sharing information, no one really recognized it until I was trawling through newspaper after newspaper and every headline from the East Coast to the West Coast, from South Dakota to Texas was about, you know, some crime about personal ads, whether it was fraud, it was often bigamy, um, and sadly, sometimes murder. It was happening all the time, again, in a society that was, you know, pretty transient. People could disappear without knowing, without people noticing. Lots of people were new in town, maybe didn't have friends or family to keep an eye on them. Um, and, you know, while there, while there were many crimes, you know, happening through the personal ads, of course there were happy stories as well, but they don't make for such a great newspaper story, right? So you just read, read about the crimes. There were people, oh, there was a guy at the New York Times called the One-Armed Bigamist in the early 1900s who kept marrying women he met through the personal ads and then stealing their life savings. Uh, so, you know, it, it, the anonymity of personal ads, of course, did make them ripe for fraud. Um, really uh, peaking in uh, 1908 with the famous tale of Belle Gunness, who was um, America's worst ever female serial killer, and she found all her victims through personal ads. I don't want to spend a lot of time on her, but can you just sketch out her story a little bit? Because it's really a crazy story. Sure. So uh, Belle Gunness lived on a farmhouse in Indiana in the early 1900s, and she placed personal ads in newspapers across the Midwest uh, looking for a husband. She would called herself a comely widow, and she ended the ad saying, no triflers need apply. Um, many men answered the ad, often uh, new immigrants, maybe from Sweden or Norway, who didn't necessarily have a lot of family connections already, she would lure them to her farmhouse and, and, and murder them. And uh, over 40 men were murdered this way. So it's really a horrific, horrible story. Obviously incredibly rare, but did 
give personalized a bad name for a little while afterwards, as you as you can imagine. Well, didn't anybody notice these men going in and not coming out? I mean, that's the tragedy. A few were noticed by their friends or family, but a lot had just arrived from, say, Sweden or Norway, didn't have that many family connections, didn't know many people, and so they they could be disappeared without people noticing. And, you know, it was it's really a sort of indictment of society that, that there weren't, at the time, the safety nets that would stop this happening. So all these men go in. What do you do with all those bodies? I'm afraid you dismember them because Belgon is trained for many years as a butcher. Mm. You dismember them, you dissolve them in acid, and then what's left, you bury it in your farm under the ground and hope no one discovers it. The problem was there was a fire at the farmhouse in 1908. It burnt down, um, and it was at that point that the local sheriff found something strange uh, under the ground uh, where the pigs were snuffling around, pulled out a human bone, and then uh, started to investigate and found more and more and more until it was concluded that there were about 40 bodies buried underneath the farmhouse. Incredible. (laughs) (laughs) Grizzly, grizzly, grizzly. Mm. Okay, so on another topic. Yes. You've mentioned online dating. We know Match.com. And and what what hasn't changed over the years? Do you see a, a, a common thread that goes throughout all of these personal ads, whether digital I or... Do. I definitely do. And that's because so much of human mate choice is evolutionary, right? However much, you know, we may try to get away from that fact. It, it, it still is very evolutionary in, in a lot of senses and certainly in a more conventional sense. So... Throughout the 300 years of of these personal ads, which really tell us so much about what men have been looking for in a woman and what women have been looking for in a man, it does come down to the same factors. Um, I sometimes wish it were otherwise, but men are generally looking for women who are fertile, which often means young. Of course, there's many, many exceptions to this. And this is changing very fast in in our lifetime. Thank goodness, many exceptions um, as women can have children older or don't want to have children or the many, many wonderful combinations of of that. But if one's going to generalize, men are looking for women who are fertile in an evolutionary sense. And women are looking for men who have resources to support any ensuing offspring. And again, the definition of resources has changed enormously. It used to mean cash. Now it could mean a good sense of humor or lots of followers on Instagram, right? But but a, a way of supporting offspring. And again, I'm hugely generalizing. There are many exceptions to this, of course, which is wonderful and, and changing fast. But we are still depressingly installed to the demands of, of, of evolution. And, and that's not going to change for a while. So you've spent all this time reading personal ads and uh, you've written a couple books about it. Do people come to you and say, help me set up my, my Tinder profile? <laughs> they do. They do. They do. And you know what I say to them? As I say, the most important thing is to know that you never know who you're going to fall in love with right? You never, never know. And chance is a wonderful thing. So while you can set up your Tinder profile, the most important thing is really being honest about yourself rather than being over prescriptive about what you're looking for, because you just never know who's going to walk into the room and be the person for you. Francesca Bowman is the author of Matrimony, Inc., From Personal Ads to Swiping Right, A Story of America Looking for Love. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. This is Constant Wonder. I'm Tenery Taylor. And I'm Marcus Smith. No matter how it is that you find that special someone, there's a pretty good chance that you're going to be looking for a diamond before you tie the knot. But why do we do that? How did that tradition get started? We're going to find out after a short break when we return for more Constant Wonder. Welcome back to Constant Wonder. I'm Marcus Smith. Chances are pretty good that if you're married, you either have a diamond or you bought a diamond before getting hitched. Have you ever wondered why, uh, how it is that diamonds actually became a girl's best friend in the first place? There's a story there. You have to go back in time, way back to a mistress of the 15th century French King Charles VII. Her name was Agnes Sorel, the first woman to wear diamonds in a royal court. And my guide for this trip back in time is Rochelle Bergstein. She's author of Brilliance and Fire, a biography of diamonds. 
in the courts of France at the time, it was actually more common for men to wear diamonds. They were a status, symbol of status and power. But she wanted a little bit of that power for herself. She wanted to glitter, too. So she started wearing them, which people thought was very bold. And actually, someone who worked for the king, his financial advisor, a man named Jacques Cor, recognized that, you know, she... Um, she was a little bit of what we would probably call like an influencer now. Like she was a trendsetter and there might be something worthwhile in encouraging her to wear diamonds because he thought that people in the court might want to wear them too if she did. He, of course, had financial stake. He was a merchant and he imported luxury goods from all over the world. And one of the things that he imported was gemstones. So he, you know, despite twitterings from the sidelines, he encouraged Agnès Sorel to wear diamonds, and women did, in fact, follow suit. Now, the thing that's so fascinating to me in everything you've said is the idea that this was a new kind of behavior to be sporting diamonds, that before this time, it just wasn't a thing to be wearing precious gemstones, or at least not diamonds? It wasn't a thing for women to be wearing precious gemstones, which I know is hard for us to wrap our minds around now because men hardly wear diamonds at all. But long, long ago, gemstones and diamonds in particular were reserved for men. They were reserved for kings. Indian maharajas wore them. Um, European men wore them on the battlefields as um, amulets. So they thought they would keep them safe. So, yes, before her, women really weren't wearing them. We need to bring in a third character into this equation who was a contemporary. Jacques Coeur, as you were talking about, he's, he's the financial advisor to the king. But then there's this diamond cutter. How does he figure in? His name was de Burkham, and he was working on new and interesting ways to cut diamonds. He was Belgian, which was and remains a diamond center, a place where a lot of diamond cutting happens. But Louis de Burkham... Um, he was pioneering a very unique way of cutting a diamond to make it sparkle more. Um, he's considered the forefather of what's now called the brilliant cut, which is what it sounds like. It's very sparkly. It's very beautiful. It's very eye-catching. So Louis de Burkham, he was someone who liaised with Jacques Cor, and they kind of, you know, this, they, it sparks an idea like, Diamonds could be shinier, they could be more sparkly, and women could wear them. And, you know, it's funny to think someone had this idea at one point, but they did. So I got online and I started looking up different types of diamonds from way back when. And some of his diamonds that he's responsible for can still be found? Yes, they still can. I mean, you know, the, the, the cut that he worked on, his signature cut, if you will, the Brilliant, is still in use today. It's been refined in many different ways, but yes, it is a it is a cut that we still see. But not just the cut. I'm I'm thinking that actual stones that he may have had his hands on and have worked on as a craftsman. One I think called the Florentine. It's gone missing. I read, uh, but the fun the fun thing was to see a picture of of, of a certain stone called the Beau Sancy. We're talking about the late 1400s, and this fellow is is cutting these diamonds with precision. That just boggles my mind. It really is amazing. I mean, the craftsmanship of cutting gemstones is really part of what makes them so precious. You know, it's the process of pulling them from the earth and then the secondary process of someone actually sitting there and figuring out how to turn a rock into this gorgeous specimen. I mean, all of that contributes to why these stones are so special to people. So I, I want to talk for at least a little bit about the diamond magnate or the diamond baron, Cecil Rhodes. And from everything I've ever heard about him, he's a problematic character. Well, yes, his legacy is very complicated. Um, you probably know that diamonds were quite rare before the 1870s. That's one of the reasons that they were only worn by men in positions of great power and then women because they were the only ones who could afford them. But that changed in the 1870s. There was a diamond rush in South Africa as one, then two, then thousands of diamonds were discovered. And a man named Cecil Rhodes, who was kind of a sickly young English teenager, followed his more adventurous brother down to South Africa and into the diamond fields. What he found there was astonishing. Um, a South African, the landscape had been completely dug up by people 
hoping to make a fortune on something that they found underground. He was not actually one of the men who was physically doing the digging. That wasn't his style. He was a scholar. Um, But he saw an opportunity in the Diamond Rush in South Africa to create a, you know, a global business. Practically had a monopoly on, on all diamonds globally, I've heard. Not so much practically. He really did have a monopoly on diamonds. When he went to the diamond fields, he saw something, he saw a business model that he realized very quickly was unsustainable. He saw, you know, that the diamond fields were owned by upwards of 90 different businessmen. And he realized that if those 90 different businessmen went into the global market with their stones, that what would happen is that they'd start undercutting each other price-wise and diamonds would very quickly lose their value. So he thought, you know, someone needed to actually control the price of diamonds and he wanted to be that person. So he methodically started buying out all of the other mine owners in South Africa until he became the owner of all of them and the company that he created the name that's probably the most associated with diamonds even now, which is called De Beers. At some point, De Beers uh, becomes so powerful that uh, there's there's really no viable competitor? That's no longer true, but it was true for a long time. De Beers was not only the mining company, they were also um, the sellers. So, yes, at a certain time in history... Um, De Beers owned, I think, upwards of 80 to 90 percent of the world's diamonds. Part of the story that you tell that's so important has to do with the genius of marketing diamonds to the global public in terms of making them attractive. And it sounds kind of silly to say that, to make diamonds attractive, but but somebody had to uh, talk it up, and and that meant advertising. (laughs) Tell us the advertising story, because that, that ties in with De Beers as well. The advertising story is so fascinating. You know, um, at the turn of the century in this country, at the turn of the 20th century, diamonds were very popular. We had some really, really wealthy people in this country who wanted to mimic what they saw um, European royalty wearing. And so they were buying up diamonds in great numbers. Then there were two world wars, a global flu pandemic, the Great Depression, and... um, Diamonds weren't looking so hot anymore. You know, luxury goods went out of style. And De Beers, owning 80 to 90% of the world's diamonds, thought, well, we're in big trouble if Americans, who at that time were their biggest market, stopped buying diamonds. So the owner of De Beers, who was the successor to Cecil Rhodes, um, his name was Oppenheimer. His young son had an idea to contract an American advertising agency to convince Americans to want to buy diamonds again. And he traveled from South Africa to Philadelphia to an advertising agency called N.W. Ayer and Son. And he sat down with another kind of young hotshot, and they came up with an idea to market not necessarily specific diamonds, but diamonds as a product. So the difference being they weren't trying to market the De Beers name per se, They wanted to create interest in diamonds overall. So in 1939, they started advertising diamonds um, in what would be considered like high-profile magazines like um, The New Yorker, uh, Town & Country, things like that, and just to get Americans interested in diamonds again. And to do that, you've got to have uh, some persuasive language, and this is a fun story too. I I just love the story of the, the woman who coined the phrase, a diamond is forever? Yes. So she was a young copywriter at N.W. Aaron Son named Frances Garrity. She was one of the few women on the team. And she was given the assignment to complete an ad with, for diamonds with a tagline. They hadn't used a tagline before. And it was kind of last minute. You know, her boss sent her home saying, just come up with something. And she stayed up all night. She couldn't think of anything. And it You know, the legend has it that at 5 o'clock in the morning, she turned over, wrote down what the best she could do, and went to the office the next day. And that tagline was, a diamond is forever. Um, The most famous tagline in advertising history. But it wasn't received like that. She brought it to her boss, and, and he said, I don't even know if that's English. You know, I don't even know if that's proper grammar. But they had run out of time. They had to go to print, so they used it. And um, 
And that's how we have that completely memorable tagline that, you know, De Beers used for 50 years. And I love the verbiage of the contending, uh, <laughs> the alternate uh, lingo that they didn't follow. Uh, can you imagine if the advertisement said, your diamond is a permanent treasure and you buy it not for today, but for all your yesterdays to be? <laughs> yes, imagine. It really just rolls off the tongue, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, Frances Garrity, she made her mark. When I first heard that, too, I was thinking about the language. A diamond is forever didn't seem to make sense. And maybe that's why it, it sticks. Doesn't, but it just works. It just works. Now, I want to have you in just a moment tell us about the connection of diamonds with engagement. Somebody had to decide that, that that's a thing because apparently it hasn't always been a thing. This is fascinating to me. And this is one of the things that really drew me in when I started researching this book, because I, like many people, thought that the practice of giving a woman a, a diamond ring to ask her to marry you, um, you know, dates back to the medieval knights, right? <laughs> um, but it doesn't. Um, there are a couple instances in history where someone gave a diamond engagement ring um, to ask a woman to marry them, but it really wasn't, you know, it wasn't the kind of cultural institution that we have now. Um, there was a moment at the turn of the 20th century when it became trendy in America, um, but it didn't have to be a diamond ring. It could be a pearl ring or a birthstone ring. However, it also, like diamonds, kind of went out of fashion when people had less money. So when De Beers and N.W. Ayer got together to think about how to market diamonds to Americans, one of the things they latched onto in fact, really the major thing they latched onto was this practice of giving a diamond engagement ring. They wanted to promote it in such a way that it became a ritual that almost nobody could avoid. And that's what they did. I mean, they made it seem as though it was something that had always been done. They used the kind of language to kind of make women expect to get a diamond when they were proposed to and to make men kind of fearful of, <laughs> of not doing that. So a lot of their advertising was focused on creating and, you know, making people buy into this ritual. And now I'm thinking about that little scene in A Christmas Story where the kid says, a crummy commercial. Do you know that one I'm talking about? Do you, do you feel like we've been had, that, that somebody, <laughs> somebody staged this thing as a tradition that didn't really exist and now it is? You know, it's a complicated question, and it's one I've thought about a lot. I actually do wear a diamond engagement ring, and I guess at first it does feel a little bit like the joke's on us. You know, we were marketed to in such a way that we all bought into this tradition. Um, but the fact is, now it is a tradition, and there is emotional meaning to that tradition that goes beyond knowing that someone in a copy room wrote, copy intended to make us want to do that at one point. You know, everything comes from somewhere. You make a good point there. I, I want to go back a little footnote to the, you said pearls and other gemstones were used for engagement rings. What's the story of this thing called the rush ring? That was a strange fad before the 20th century. That was a strange fad where boys were creating little rings out of um, straw and grass and asking girls to marry them. And it became so irritating to the community that a priest or, or a preacher, someone <laughs> told the boys that they were going to consider these proposals binding if they didn't stop. And, and that sure is, that really dried up the, the ritual right away. Yeah, a, a ring made out of straw can't signify much, you, you would think. Uh, but this also leads to the question of the price of a ring. Somehow, in this whole story, there's a kind of a weird twist to this story where by insisting through tradition, through this contrived tradition, but by insisting that it has to be a diamond, then the man has to really lay out some money. And in a way, there's deeper commitment to the engagement. It's, it's less of... It's less likely for the, the man to retract his proposal. Well, yes. So part of the language of these early De Beers advertisements, and let me explain that they were quite long and wordy, like the example that you read for that tagline. That was kind of typical of the language that they used. 
there was almost an implied threat. Like, the more you spend, the more she'll want to marry you and the more that she'll want to stay with you because you're showing her how much you value her. So there was some inner psychology that was being accessed um, that, like you said, kind of created the idea of a buy-in. He's showing you how much he values you, and you in turn are saying, wow, he really is going to commit to this marriage. (laughs) I'm laughing because it sounds silly when you lay it out like that. It sounds so transactional, but that, of course, is is the message. How would you assess where we are today with diamonds there as they relate to in engagements? You've already said, well, traditions start, they got to start somewhere. And is this just so ingrained now that you don't see it ever going away? Well, it's interesting because to some extent, yes. I mean, when a man kneels down to propose to a woman, um, we as a culture expect now that he produces something to kind of seal the deal. And more often than not, that is a diamond ring. That said, um, the younger generations have been more interested in exploring designs that are outside of the traditional solitaire. You know, some people want something that feels more unique to them, that feels like it tells more of a story about them. So jewelers are seeing people ask for different stones now or different arrangements of stones that include a diamond but also have other stones in there. And also, younger generations are a little bit savvier about this advertising story. And some people do have the reaction that they don't want to do something just because a diamond seller told them to once upon a time. Do you see any innovative approaches to marketing that are being conducted today to to keep people loyal to the tradition? Yes. I mean, I think there's a lot going on in the industry right now. I mean, we see lab-grown diamonds. So that's created a, a rift between um, different types of diamonds, ones that are grown in a lab or ones that come from the earth. Um, and the natural diamond market is particularly invested in not only keeping people interested in diamonds, but keep, keeping them interested in natural diamonds, ones that come from the earth. So, yes, there are still advertisements for diamonds. They're trying to keep up with the times, you know. Couples aren't as traditional as they used to be. Some couples live together before they get married. Some couples don't think they want to get married at all, but they still want some kind of commitment. So you'll see commercials that acknowledge these non-traditional arrangements or more contemporary arrangements. Um, so they're doing their best in a, in a world that's a little less clear-cut than it used to be in the 1940s and 1950s. Rochelle Bergstein, such a pleasure to visit with you. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Rochelle Bergstein's book is titled Brilliance and Fire, A Biography of Diamonds.